What was God to do? I'm Father Kurt Hein with Light of Christ Anglican Church, and we are going through On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. This last week, we read through the first chapter, The Divine Dilemma Regarding Life and Death, and we discussed that on Wednesday with some questions that I posted. You can check out the, uh, the video before this one. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about The Divine Dilemma Regarding Knowledge and Ignorance. So today, we're going to do a review of last week, and we are going to, I'm going to ask some questions to help you with the reading of this next, this next week, The Divine Dilemma Regarding Knowledge and Ignorance. And so that question, what was God to do, is a question that we see multiple times in this next chapter as Athanasius explores the dilemma that God has been placed in. What is he to do now that humans have sinned, that now that humans who he, whom he made in his image to live forever have become corrupted and are perishing? What, what is God to do? What is a good God to do now that the, the, the creatures that he created to know him are now ignorant of him because of their sin and worshiping idols? What is a good God going to do with that? And these are the two divine dilemmas. So let's review last week. The divine dilemma regarding um, life and death, and then we'll ask some questions here for, for next week. So, <clears throat> in review, we asked um, about the divine dilemma regarding life and death. The first question is: Athanasius describes three non-Christian understandings of creation. Can you describe these? He talks about the Epicureans. They believe that the universe came into being spontaneously without any sort of providence of God. Um, sound familiar? The uh, uh, Plato, whom Athanasius says, believes that God made everything from pre-existing matter. He, Athanasius says this doesn't make any sense because this means that God would be weak. God would not be a creator. He would just be uh, like a carpenter. He would just be forming something that already was. He would not actually be the creator of it. And then the Epicurean idea, he just, he says, this is completely nonsensical because you look at the world and you see that it's differentiated into all of these different forms that work together and that implies obviously providence some sort of des design and then he talks about the marcionites or the gnostics those that believe that the old testament god was some sort of evil god that made matter and that the new testament god is the good spiritual god who came and whose love and he he says that is untrue as well. And then he points to what scripture teaches, which is that God, the all-powerful, almighty God, created all things from nothing, simply by his word. This is how God created, from nothing, by his word. Why did God create? Was he lonely? No. God created because he is good. He is good. And because of his goodness, he wanted to share in that goodness with others. And so his goodness pours forth, as it were, into, by a free decision of himself, into the creation of this world from nothing by his, by his word. Um, how are humans different than other animals? Well, unlike other animals, they share in the, in the power of the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity. Humans share in that power of the eternal word. We are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of the word who is in the image of the Father. So what is evil? And how did evil begin? Well, Athanasius tells us that evil is non-being. Evil is not a thing. It's the absence of the good. It's a privation. And evil came into the world when, when humans who were given free will 
turned away from God's purposes. And in doing that, we, we lost our a special grace that we had with God because of the word that we participated in and returned to our natural state. We became like animals again, subject to death and, and corrupted. So this is the origin story of evil. Evil is not something that God created. It's something that's a result of the free wills of created beings. For Athanasius, this dilemma then, this puts God in a dilemma, a two-sided dilemma. On one hand, God's word can't be broken. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will perish. So that must stand. Yet, God, because he is good, and he made these creatures to be in his image, to participate in his word, to have eternal life, it's improper for him to just leave, to create these beings that he knows will fall, and just leave them in this condition of being fallen without doing anything about it, so that his image would disappear and, and, and perish. He could not, because of his goodness, abandon his creation. So it was appropriate for the second person of the Trinity, the Word, to be the one that would save and heal humanity because it was the Word, remember, who from nothing created the world. So the one who creates the world is the one who will come to recreate it. This is why the Word comes, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God comes to, to, uh, to become incarnate, to heal us. But some might ask, why didn't God just turn let humans turn back to him and repent and, he, and him just say, everything okay. I'll give you a mulligan. We'll just tee it back up again. Why didn't he do that? Well, Athanasius tells us that the reason that God didn't do that is it wasn't simply a transgression. It wasn't simply an offense, but this was an offense that had consequences. And those real consequences that rippled through the created order had to be dealt with by God. They had to be dealt with by God. So why did then the Word of God take on a human body and not just some other kind of body? We know in the Old Testament, the Word of God appears as, say, a fiery bush or um, a pillar of flame or cloud. Why did he take on a human body? Why the incarnation as a human? Well, he tells us, basing this off of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that he took on a human body so that he could become subject to human suffering and death in order to extinguish them through his divine power. And he uses this incredible analogy of chaff and fire. And it's as if the divine nature of the word is the fire. And when it touches through, the human, through his human body, touches the corruption, it's like fire to chaff. The chaff is extinguished, is, is burnt up. The corruption is burnt up by the incorruptible nature of God the word. What motivated God to save us? Well, the same motivation that motivated God to create the world. It's his goodness. It's his goodness that led him to do this, that motivated God to do this. So how does this, getting back to the dilemma, how does this um, fix the dilemma, that, the dilemma that God is in, so to speak? Well, by offering, quote, he says, by offering his own temple and his bodily instru instrument as a substitute for all, fulfilling in death, that which was required. So he deals with the law. He deals with the command by being the one that comes and takes that death onto himself as a human. And so he fulfills that, that commandment and that law and declaration of God. But then also, because uh, he is incorrupt, he is clothed with a body, he is able, through then the power of, 
his resurrection to take on in that body the corruption of the world and to extinguish it through the power of his resurrection. It's as if all of the corruption of the world was, was absorbed by him and, and was fully expended in the earthly body of God the Word. Okay, so that's a little bit of a, of a review of the last chapter as we talk about the first divine dilemma. As we talk about the second one, the divine dilemma regarding knowledge and ignorance, here are some questions you can ask yourself as you read through that will guide your reading. So what was God to do? <clears throat> Here's the first question. What are the two sides of God's dilemma in this chapter? What are two ways that God made for us to know him that ultimately failed? Why didn't God just create us and then let us be ignorant of him? What's the ultimate way for God to reveal himself and resolve this dilemma? What's the analogy that Athanasius uses to show why the image of God must come into the world to renew humanity? Please explain. How does Jesus show that he's better than the false gods? Hint, there are four ways that correspond to four different idols and false gods. Did the word of God cease upholding the world and cease being omnipotent and omnipresent upon becoming incarnate? All right, those are some questions for you to answer. I look forward to the discussion this next Wednesday. God bless.